0: Hello. You're listening to Great Big Talk, a multidisciplinary creative conference and podcast series for inspiring the next generation of artists and entrepreneurs. Today, we'd like to introduce you to writer, director, and filmmaker Bob Ruggieri. And I knew the scene in the movie that where it's right before this dog attacks the the, the lead, and I was just like sitting there visualizing that. And then all of a sudden, I'm in the theater at Sundance with like 10,000 people on their opening night, and I just remember like having this like moment of like. It's like an epiphany, it was like surreal. I can't write like Pat Conroy, so I'm never going to write like a novel, Um, but a screenplay is more just sort of like a visual um, story. Like somebody sits in a room, has an idea, and that movie that I may have loved or sat there and like watched or cried or like affected me so much started with just a guy in a room or a girl in a room with a thought. Action is so important because if you think about all the dreamers out there who are walking around with amazing ideas in their head, some of the most beautiful art that probably could ever exist is just floating around in people's heads. So here are some of the things that I've done as a producer that may not match with like what the vision of a producer is. I think at one point I was hooked up to a heart monitor machine um, and was having panic attacks. Again, duh. I mean. It's the path to becoming what I am today, like, and you just want to scream at the top of your lungs, like, go do that. Like, what are you afraid of? Just go do that. To me, the most important thing, I think, in life is to discover what your purpose is. You know, I think everybody has a purpose here. Um, I think most people recognize that. And when you see that in somebody, you know it because they're, they're talking super fast or they're super excited. And you know right away that whatever that person is talking about is their purpose. Like, that's what drives them. I call it the soulgasm. Because you see it, and you can feel it. And it's like, when I used to talk about one of my scripts, there's a script called Dead Dresses, which I'll get to soon. When I would talk about that to people, like, I would start to talk so fast. I'd be like, oh, my God, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. And, like, I could feel my whole body, like, tingling and buzzing. And um, that's the soulgasm. Like, that is when you from like a very deep place within know that like what you are talking about is what you love like that's what you have to do that's what you have to follow and so once you start becoming aware of that you see it in people so easily and it's so easy to like sit there and look at somebody and they're complaining about their life and they're saying I can't stand this I hate that and you could feel it you could feel that like negativity that cloak that's on them and then they'll start talking about something they love and you'll see them perk up and like they're they just completely start to like Get super excited and from an outsider it's so easy to say wake up like look at what you're talking about you hate and look at what you're just telling me how much you love something you know and you just want to scream at the top of your lungs like go do that like what are you afraid of just go do that and so the soulgasm um and the quest for multiple soulgasms like following that with all your heart <laughs> who wants just one soulgasm i mean come on people i happened to be at a library and i don't know why this didn't occur to me at the time um, but I happened to pick up this book, and it's weird because I just found this book yesterday. But four weddings and a funeral, um, which is very bizarre, because it's not like my most earth-shattering movie that I loved and had to have or see. Um, but I found the screenplay, and it never really—I never really sat back and thought about, oh, somebody writes a movie. Like somebody sits in a room, has an idea, and that movie that I may have loved or sat there and like watched or cried or like affected me so much started with just a guy in a room or a girl in a room with a thought and and how does that like evolve and so what was so cool about forwardings in a funeral was it was a movie i had seen i liked it i love richard curtis by the way um but this wasn't necessarily my favorite of his but uh he starts off by talking about the movie's just about to be released and he writes like the four things a writer should think about like don't think about the rewrite like you're going to go crazy you're going to be locked in a room and for some reason the like reading someone's thoughts out loud and like humanizing it for me and realizing that like i might be really good at that cuz i can't write like pat conroy so i'm never going to write like a novel um but a screenplay is more just sort of like a visual um story you know and so it's instead of you know the sun nestled down below you know her bosoms heaved like you know, a child looking for their mother. I could just be like, fade in, a room. You know, a lady A lady walks in as the sun sets in the background. I was like, dude, I can do that. Um, <laughs> and so I did. Uh, so where do you go once you've graduated and you have a a writing degree? Uh, I became the Georgie Armani of the deceased. So this is from a Crane's business article. Um... My dad, since we had our screening business, decided, you know what, let's add an embroidery machine and uh, let's make dresses for dead people. <laughs> Again, duh, I mean, it's the path to becoming what I am today, like, bare dresses. So for the next um, four years, we had a warehouse right at St. Rocco's Court. Uh, so it wasn't quite LA or New York, but you know, it had Johnny's across the street from it, which was pretty cool. Um, so for the next four years, we, we, had, we did silk screening, we did embroidery. It's funny because, just so you know, this became a screenplay, which was optioned and uh, is going to be the movie I will film and direct and write and produce now that I've done everything next year. So this is like, this is my coming out party, people. So that's what I did for the next four years. Um, If I was wiser at the time, instead of complaining every day and hating my life to the point where I actually started having nervous breakdowns and uh, I think at one point was hooked up to a heart monitor machine um, and was having panic attacks, which I didn't know what those were um, until I had one. Uh, Because, not because it was like the most intense, overwhelming business, because I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to write, and I would try and find time to write when I was at the shop. But I felt like people who worked there found their greatest joy in alerting me of stuff that was going wrong. Um, uh, but a guy walked into the, to, actually walked into our space, and I'm sitting there at a cutting table, you know, with sheer fabrics laid out, very beautiful sheer fabrics, and some organzas, perhaps, some appliques, and I happened to have a screenplay book because I was, I think I was plotting my departure like a little evil villain, like, <laughs> I will sneak away. 12 o'clock, um, and a guy walks into the room, and he sees me reading a screenplay book, and he was like, do you write scripts? And I was like, well, almost. Uh, and he was like, you have to meet my friend Greg Jones. Like, this guy's got the most unbelievable story. It's a true story. It's about, you know, he grew up in the 1960s, and he had this abusive father, and, uh, you know, he was in the military, and I was like, I'm in. And so somehow equipped with that, and a friend who um, was, just started working at MTV, I was like, Dad, uh, is it cool if I just, like, go to New York? And he was like, go for it, you know, we'll figure out the whole dead dress thing. Uh, We'll keep that running. Um, Didn't want that legacy to die off for us. Uh, But I just, I I packed up my U Haul and I I fled to New York and I think was there for like six to eight months and I just did nothing but write. So I wrote a screenplay called Pure Shooter. Um, I jumped on movies as extras. I, I interned at MTV, which wasn't really officially an intern, because I was already out of college, but we just, I shadowed a guy who I knew, and he called me an intern. Um, And so, unfortunately, that none of those paid, so I came back to the sweatshop to do some dresses, um, while I continued writing, and that script actually got picked up by a major studio. Uh, Went to LA for a while, I I couch surfed, um, which is so, I don't even know if people do that anymore, but... We all did that. We would sleep on friends' couches and we worked on movies and, you know, we made $100 a day for like a 22-hour day. We would literally come home and sleep for two hours and then wake back up and go. Um, but it was exciting at the time because, you know, I'm in L.A., I was working on a movie in L.A. And uh, ironically, it's the same thing as working on a movie in Cleveland. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the 216 stereotype, but uh, people think like, oh, that guy's from L.A., so he'll make a movie. But uh, it's the same thing, you know, like the Avengers shot here. That's Cleveland, people. Um, and so it helped me to sort of break up that dissolution of Hollywood versus Cleveland. Like we can do everything they can do there, you know? And so I've done it there and here and it's the same thing. So, um, it gave me the confidence and then, um, from there I was like, I'm ready to produce. Like I was ready to take that next step and it became because I was getting frustrated at these jobs. I was like, I'm doing the same thing. Like I've already, I've been here. I've done that from disgruntled writer. I started jumping on commercials, movies, anyone that would get anyone that would hire me. I started working for a casting director. Um, that spun into, uh, because I was working with talent as a casting director, um, a producer basically called me and was like, would you be a second AD on set? Would you run talent? And I was like, that's awesome. Yeah, I can just like, I just talk to the talent, like bring them to set when you call me. And she's like, yeah. sort what a second AD And I was like, all right. So I slowly built myself up and I went from second AD to first AD. Um, I did all kinds of art props. And then eventually I started production supervising. So at the time of LeBron James uh, part one, um, you know, I oversaw a lot of those um, commercials, and there's a lot of pieces at play, and so you learn how to sort of put something together, and that gave me the tools I needed to uh, start to think that maybe I could produce a movie. Cleveland Film Commission throws these crew mixers, um, which are sort of networking opportunities for people in the industry, and there I met Tyler Davidson and Jeff Nichols, who were in town scouting for Take Shelter, and so at that whole crew mixer, I only mixed with those two, um, and I just instantly knew I had to do that movie, and so... Uh, met with Tyler and he brought me on as a co-producer and we ended up shooting Take Shelter um, all around Cleveland, Grafton, Chardon um, and that just became one of the coolest experiences for me because Jeff Nichols is such an engaging like fun excited person and you could see the enthusiasm in him and like that carried on with me. Jeff grabbed me one time we were sitting in the backyard and we had just got scouted this house and he just grabbed me and he said just look at this and it was all about just sort of flat scenic landscapes and he just said "Look, look at this backyard. And he was like, "Can you picture it? There's going to be an, a gigantic storm, like three-dimensional, gigantic storm swirling right now, like lightning striking." And I knew the scene in the movie that where it's right before this dog attacks the the, or the lead. And I was just like sitting there visualizing that. And then all of a sudden, I'm in the theater at Sundance with like 10,000 people on their opening night, and I just remember like having this like moment of like. It's like an epiphany. It was like surreal, you know, that there was just a moment of sitting in a quiet backyard, um, which suddenly translated to being in a theater with all those people. So that was the bug. That was another soulgasm. I think that sort of hooked me and spiraled into the Kings of Summer, which um, this one is way. Yeah, I feel like I'm already talking too long. So um, Kings of Summer, Tyler and I were actually in a coffee shop um, in Toronto. It, was, uh, it already premiered at Sundance and it was playing at Toronto. And we were sitting in coffee shops, which is, it was just, it was like I had stepped into the cliche that I'd always read about, which is sitting in coffee shops, reading scripts, and having meetings all day long. So it was like, we have a meeting at three. Have you read this script yet? Have you read this script yet? And so there we are, sitting there, two really cool producers with a with a successful movie on our Kindles. Because we were the only people that couldn't afford an iPad. Um, and so everybody just kind of like flipping through scripts or reading, and we're sitting there going like, like, and then a... Hey, and then you'd hear a laugh. And I would be like, what did you, what did you just read? What would you laugh at? And he'd be like, dude, the line. That, and I'd be like, I didn't read that yet. Hold on. Um, and the back and forth and the laughter, we were just like, we both like turned our Kindles off and looked at each other. And we were like, dude, we're making that movie. Like right there. And so we had the meeting immediately following and We were like, we're making this movie. We're shooting it in Cleveland because of, a nice little tie-in, um, the Metro Parks. Like that whole movie is about kids running away to the woods and, um, we knew we would just want a bunch of beautiful, like, scenic locations, different looks, different trees, pine trees, cliffs. Um, And I grew up here. And I knew that there was beautiful places all over. Like, we used to go as kids, and we would go, you know, walking through all these places and having picnics and cookouts. And we knew this was the place that this movie had to take place. And so um, the Metro Parks became, like, the backdrop. like, And that was one of the things that we were actually kind of praised for. Um, Maybe the only one. Um, And... Because every movie, when you think about Cleveland, like, what do you think about Cleveland movies? It's all about, like, taking, you know, downtown can be cheated for New York. Or, you know, we can close down East 9th and do, do, like, some explosions. And it was the first movie where, like, you don't see a building, you know? The whole point of that movie was sort of like a throwback, where you don't really see cell phones. You don't see, you know, crazy technology. The whole idea was the disconnect from that, right? So to have that access of all of these beautiful metro parks was the most amazing backdrop for us. And so... That's why I I love that movie. Like, that movie was the hardest we've ever fought. Like, on that movie, I started thinking I was a superhero. Um, I also produce and direct a lot of videos and TV commercials. Uh, I actually happened to be on location in L.A. shooting Lost in Austin when I got a phone call um, from a producer at Donor Advertising. And he said, "Um, we're doing a pro bono commercial. You know, would you be interested in coming back, you know, when you're in Cleveland and helping us uh, produce this? And uh, I was like, well, you know, it'll depend on my schedule, but, you know, I'd love to help out. And he's like, it's for Belfare. And I was like, I'm in. Belfare is such a great organization that helps uh, try and raise awareness of youth homeless. Those are the kind of projects that I think, you know, for me, I, I like aspire to do whenever I can. So here are some of the things that I've done as a producer that may not match with, like, what the vision of a producer is. So I was talking to my wife about it. I'm like, God, a producer, like, you think about it, like, they they should have tons of money. And they're, like, they're with, they just got babes everywhere, and they go to parties in the hills, and they, like, drive convertibles. But, like, I didn't. I had to kick my sister out of her house with her two, my two nieces, her daughters, so that I could put up a crew member who had a dog. That was six weeks. Six weeks I displaced my sister and my two nieces so that we could have a sound guy who had a dog like that's insane that's not glamorous and then on this one job we just had we all spent maybe two straight all-nighters trying to figure out how to get jello how to get a stapler to like stay in a mold of jello do you know how hard that is like if anyone can do it please let us know because we ended up just freezing (laughs) we ended up (laughs) freezing water and putting the stapler in there and using color food coloring these are basically the things that I've learned that have like that have sustained me through like all of the crap you go through. Because obviously any profession has has as BS, right? There's no profession where you just like walk into it and every day is bliss and you're just like chirping and everything works out well. Um, but especially in in film, there's so much ego. And so every day I just like I am so egoless, which is why it's really hard for me to speak right now, even though you're probably like, dude, you won't shut up. Um, but, like, it's really hard for me to talk about myself because, like, I feel like that's ego, you know? And I don't I don't like talking about ego. Um, so to have to fight through that all the time, you have to, like, fall back on stuff. And so these are sort of the things that I fall back on to sort of keep me sane. And that's to, A, like, you have to find your purpose. So once I found that, like, I knew that I had to chase the soulgasms, right? Um, you have to believe in yourself, which I know is the name of my speech. Um, believe in your effing self. Um Because that became a huge mantra actually during Kings of Summer, to the point where um, my friend Katie, who was like sort of my right hand person on that movie, she gave me a t shirt um, because I was trying to be a superhero and we were trying to fight all these things. She actually gave me a shirt that said that. Um, And so I wore that shirt to sort of uh, get us through the the finish line for that one. Um, The other one is don't be a victim. You know, like I was sitting there as a writer and I remember just complaining all the time, like, why won't anyone make this? Like, I keep these producers, like, I hate them. They keep telling me lies. And it's like, you know what? then go do it, you know? And so it's weird because I hear that now and I hear people complaining and I want to be like, dude, just shut up and go do it. Like, what are you waiting for? You can make your own movie. You don't have to wait for other people, you know? Like, you can't just sit there and expect that there's some random director and some investor and someone, actor, who are all just like sitting there magically waiting for your perfectly written script. Like, go make it. And then the idea of failing. Like, I've failed a lot. Like, I'm failing right now, but like one day, (laughs) one day I will look at this and I'll be like, dude, you failed, but like, I will learn from this, you know? I will sit there and I will go you talked way too fast and uh, too long. Um, but anyway, it's it's. I don't look at failure as anything other than a learning experience. Um, and then one of the cool things is when you kind of look back, which I had never really done to this, to this level because I put a lot of time into this talk. I started last night at 3.30. Um, <laughs> and in that short window uh, of, of three hours before I sort of faded out a little bit on the couch, um, you start to see those dots, and you start to think, like, oh, my God, I complained so much about, like, having a company that made dresses for dead people. Why was I complaining? Because if I had just seen the bigger picture, I would have realized that, like, I learned how to be a producer there. I learned how to manage personalities. I learned about money. I was forced to learn different things. And the guy that was going to walk into that door and deliver me the first script that was going to get optioned by a studio, like, if I had known that now, like, I wouldn't have, that's so much wasted energy, you know? I could have, I didn't need to have those panic attacks. What a waste of panic. Um... And so you just kind of see those dots. And like for me, again, going back to the title, it was all from frustration. It was like every time I got frustrated, I was like, I need to make a change, you know? And that happened with producing. As a producer, I started working with directors, and I was like, directors who were coming in and getting paid tons of money, and I'm sitting there producing for them, and I'm like, we're done with the scene. I'm like, but you didn't even cover that in a tight. Like this whole thing is about like their emotion. I'm like, why aren't you covering that? You know? And I started noticing. And my friend called me out, who I work with all the time. He was like, dude, you're supposed to be like the funny guy that keeps everyone happy. And, I, and he's like, you're becoming angry. And I was like, then I need to make a change. And so I started directing. So I was on a call with a client who I'd worked for a lot as a producer. And they always gave us a lot of kind of creative controls, producers to help write the spots. And we were on a conference call. And they were like, well, who's directing it? And I said, I am. I'm directing this. And uh, they were like, well, okay. Um, and so I sat down and I did a vision board. And I created, like, told them how I wanted it to play out. Uh, with a friend, Mark, uh, who I work with at Garage Creative, and together they're like, okay, go direct this, and so that was sort of my first directing, you know, and then I got to be very creative and hands-on with the Belfair spot, and then that spiraled into getting to do some directing spots for Purell, which I cast my children in, because I'm a whore, um, <laughs> and I was able to pay them hundred bucks a piece, which is going to go in their college funds, because you know how expensive colleges these days? Um, and so that's just continuing to spiral, so that's what it takes to be a producer,